So this morning, we begin the third and final act of Luke's gospel, which I will simply refer to as the hinge of history. What happens in these final chapters in Luke's gospel will change the world forever. And if we listen closely with an open mind and respect for this powerful history, our lives, our lives may be transformed as well, and many of our lives have. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke 19, verses 45 through 48. And as we stand, let's read God's word together. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thank you. Please be seated. When we left Jesus last week, he was approaching the city of Jerusalem, and he was sobbing. He was brokenhearted over this great city because they would not repent, and they did not get it. And it was a city famous for prosecuting and even killing the prophets and those sent by God. And then he arrives into the city. And of course, the first thing that he does is he goes up to the temple. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that Jesus has been to the temple at least once before in his childhood when he was 12 years old. But if you really pay careful attention to what Luke tells us in Luke 2.41, we know, and he states clearly, that his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. So I think it's safe to assume that Jesus, like most Jews in the ancient world, visited the temple on many occasions throughout his life. We do know from Luke 2.41 that Jesus was drawn to the temple, and as a young man, he mystified the religious elders with great wisdom and understanding. If you recall when Mary asked the boy Jesus, son, why have you treated us so? Remember when he, he stayed behind and the parents left, and it's like parenting most embarrassing moments, you know. Son, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus answers, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So even as a preteen, Jesus thought of the Jewish temple as his father's house. Given that much of what follows, much of what follows in the next several chapters of Luke takes place in the temple, it is important for us to have an accurate picture of this place in our minds. Many of us, as we read the Bible, we've We've just kind of blown through that, and we all have a little picture of what maybe that temple looked like. Let me share with you uh, one of the finer approachable descriptions of, of the temple uh, found in uh, Don Crabill's book, The Upside Down Kingdom. I strongly recommend you pick up this book. It's an excellent, excellent book. And in it, he gives a, a wonderful summary of the Jewish temple in the first century, and that's going to help our imaginations grasp what it was like that day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, into the temple courts. Crable writes, the temple was the pinnacle of religious life, the very heart of Jewish worship, ritual, and emotion. The temple at Jerusalem stirred passions. It was shrouded in mystery and awe. It was the seat of wisdom, law, and scripture. It housed the one Jewish altar on which the high priest performed the sacrificial rites of atonement once a year for the entire Jewish world. Here and only here was forgiveness possible with the proper sacrifice. In the one and only Holy of Holies, the high priest entered the presence of God. The Holy of Holies was the literal home of God. Jerusalem was the city of the temple. The arteries of the Jewish religion pulsated with the heartthrob of the temple. 
Crabo goes on to describe the actual temple dimensions and features. He writes, We may visualize the temple as a contemporary church building, but a modest shopping mall offers a better comparison. Now, there are actually churches that are like a modest shopping mall. Uh, so that's really the comparison. He said the temple itself, just the building, the temple itself about, was about 100 feet long, 35 feet wide, and 60 feet high. That's six stories high. But it stood inside a 35-acre plaza area. All right, so to give you context, our entire footprint of building and parking and such here at Quivera is 13 acres. And at Warnell, it's 11 acres. So the plaza that would be walled in that the temple was in was 35 acres. Okay? Magnificent marble colonnades and towering walls ranging from 100 to 300 feet high enclosed the entire complex. Some of the stones in the walls weighed 70 tons and foundational ones topped 500 tons. That's unthinkable, right? The only temple plaza... I mean, the open temple plaza was divided into two areas, Gentile and Jewish. The court of the Gentiles, open to all, covered about two-thirds of the plaza area. A low stone wall barred the Gentiles from entering the three-part Jewish area, which comprised of the court of women, the court of Israelites, and the court of priests. Jewish men brought their animal offerings to the court of Israelites, gave them to the priest, who killed and sacrificed the animals on the altar in the court of priests. The Holy of Holies was deep inside the sanctuary, directly behind the altar. It composed of a completely dark and empty room, about 30 feet square, and it was considered the Almighty's sacred abode. The temple complex included two additional structures. The large royal stoa inside the 900-foot southern wall housed the commercial operations of the temple. Here, money changers traded the pristine Tyrian half-shekel required for offerings and sold animals for sacrifice. And outside the northern wall stood the Antonia Fortress, where Roman soldiers overlooked the entire area, ready to squelch any disturbance. The temple building itself, which housed the Holy of Holies, was not used for public worship because it was considered the literal house of God. Therefore, worship, sacrifice, and other rituals took place in the large open courts outside the temple. Gold and silver covered much of the temple building, including the furnishings and the roof, from the distant countryside, it appeared a glittering peak on the holy mountain. And this is, if you understand this, from almost anywhere, I mean, miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem in any direction, you would see that, that gleaming gold and silver that was on the temple at the, on the Mount Zion. It was a, a thing to behold. Quite frankly, if, if the Jewish temple still existed today, it would clearly be the eighth wonder of the world. I mean, it, would, it, would, it was that remarkable of a building and a vista because it sat so high up on the hill. Roughly 18,000 priests and Levites were involved in the temple operation. 18,000. That would be in a rotation throughout the year. It took 200 Levites to simply close the doors of the temple each evening. Just to give you perspective. Dozens of money changers sold pilgrims pure money for tithes and hucksters peddled animals for sacrifice. According to Graybill, the temple had three functions in the ancient world, uh, ancient Jewish world, ritual, economic, and administrative. Beyond the religious value, the temple housed the national treasury for the Jewish people. Temple worship was the primary industry in Jerusalem. Okay? Temple worship was the primary industry 
money-making reality in Jerusalem. And temple leaders used the temple treasury to then buy up property and run farms throughout the countryside in Judea. And those farms were often worked by poor peasants who were then taxed by the temple. You can only imagine the business generated during the, the major festivals every year when the average population of Jerusalem would go from 25,000 to 180,000. Craybill writes, the temple was the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. It symbolized God's living presence on earth. Folks came to the temple to pray, believing that from this site, their prayers went directly to the ear of God. Here, both Nazarite and Gentile converts offered sacrifices. Here was brought the wife suspected of adultery. Here, the first fruits were offered. Here, mothers presented purification offerings at the birth of each child. This holy place was the fountain of forgiveness. This was also the home to the 70-member Sanhedrin, the final Jewish authority in religious, political, and civil matters. Here also resided the high priest. Graybill concludes this way. He says, It is quite impossible to overstate the importance of the temple and of sacrifice. Place and ritual formed the sacred core of Hebrew religion. Now, I tell you all of that so that you can appreciate what happens when Jesus walks into the temple this day in Jerusalem. Luke writes in verse 45, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Do you understand that when Jesus drives out those who sold, he is effectively shutting down the temple? The pilgrims needed their money changed into the pure acceptable money frontier instead of the Roman currency in order to pay their tithes. The pilgrims also needed to purchase animals that they would then give over to the priests for their sacrifices to the Lord. If those who sold, the money changers and those who sold the animals, if they're run out, the temple shuts down. Now, we know at least one reason that Jesus drives out the money changers and those who are selling stuff in the temple courts, and he says it himself in verse 46. It is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which literally reads, my house, shall be a called a house, sorry, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Clearly, Jesus was deeply offended by the scene and the smell that he encountered upon coming into the temple courts. I mean, you can imagine a, a sacred space like this that has been set apart for worship and prayer, and you walk in, and the space is covered with sheep dung. There is so much activity, noise, bartering, and business that you can hardly hear yourself think. Any attempt to pray would be distracted by the incessant buzz of flies that swarmed all over the courtyard due to the dung and the myriads of animals present. The smell of roasting meat and fat fills the air, and now your stomach is growling. The shouts of vendors competing with one another would remind you of the guy at the Royals game who constantly shouts, cold beer, right? I mean, it's just, it's going on all around you. It's not an environment for worship within that outer court. And remember, Jesus has come to town on the eve of the Passover festival, so there are literally thousands and hundreds of thousands of people coming and going, buying and selling. We could not expect to have a very meaningful time of prayer in such an environment. Surely Jesus drives out the money changers and the vendors because they have defiled the environment for prayer that was intended to take place in the temple courts. Jesus is also offended because the, the Gentile court, where non-Jews should have felt welcome to worship and pray, was overrun with the Jewish money machine. The Jews were sending a very clear signal. Gentiles were not welcome. There was no place set aside for the non-Jews to pray and worship. But I think we can even look a bit deeper. 
beyond the stench and the offense of big business, Jesus makes clear by this action that such ritual in this place is no longer prescribed or necessary to receive God's forgiveness. We've already heard Jesus say that he has the authority to forgive sins. Think about that. If Jesus can forgive sins, the temple is going out of business permanently. If Jesus is the means by which people can be reconciled with God, the big business of sacrificing animals will go the way of the carburetor. Please understand how offensive and threatening Jesus was to the entire Jewish status quo, to the operations of the temple, and to the very economy of Jerusalem itself. Most scholars will tell you that Jesus would have probably lived to be an old man had he never attempted to shut down the temple. But this action, as described in all four Gospels, sealed his fate. Because, I mean, let's face it, people typically don't get killed over religious disputes. People get killed when money and power are threatened. Remember, Jesus drives out the economic engine of Jerusalem right in front of the high priest, right in front of the most powerful group of people in the nation, the Sanhedrin. And that's why we're not surprised when we read in verse 47, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Which raises the question, did Jesus know what he was doing? In other words, did Jesus simply lose his cool and overreact with an emotional outburst? Or was he in total control with an accurate awareness of the likely repercussions of his actions? We never see Jesus do anything impulsively. So we can only conclude that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus walked right into the White House of the Jewish world and tore it up knowing full well that his actions would be interpreted as a clear and present danger to the sovereign power of the Jewish state. Jesus was unafraid. He was not apologetic, nor was he in doubt. He walked into the house of God as though he owned it. His demeanor was not unlike a father who walks into his house after being away only to find his teenage son hosting a beer bash with 20 of his drunk buddies. Jesus cleared the house of God of those who defiled it because it was his house. And it was to be a house of prayer because the practice of selling and sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of sin was over. The ultimate, final, and sufficient Lamb of God, the one and only perfect sacrifice, had now come to the altar as the once and for all atonement for the sins of the world. Jesus knows that the time of the temple has come to an end. And just a few years after his death and resurrection, the Jewish temple will be utterly destroyed by 24,000 Roman soldiers under the leadership of General Titus. Never again will the Jews be led to think that forgiveness is available only through proper sacrifices in the holy temple of God in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jews believe, as do Christians, that the great temple of God will not be reestablished until the Messiah comes. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. Notice, however, that the last thing that we learn from our text this morning is so powerfully relevant to where we are today. Look at verse 47, 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Here's what we know. Beginning this particular day in the temple, 
as recorded in Luke's gospel. And every day since, for some 2,000 years, people with power, position, and influence have made every attempt to destroy Jesus Christ. Every generation can point to influential authors, politicians, dictators, religious leaders, and skeptics who have invested incredible energies and resources to discredit and put an end to the movement that Jesus Christ began. All have failed. Countries like China, Russia, and Romania have outlawed Christianity, making the worship and following of Jesus Christ a crime punishable by death, and still he lives and his movement grows. In Muslim and Hindu countries all over the world, children know that converting to Christianity will lead to inevitable exile, physical beatings, and even death at the hands of their own families, and yet they forsake all to follow this man, Jesus Christ. But why? Why this man, Jesus Christ? And please don't tell me it's because Caesar made Christianity a state religion, and that accounts for the success of Christianity. That's a ridiculous concept. Rome fiercely persecuted Christianity for 300 years before Caesar's conversion. And Rome is but a speck on the screen of history today. We don't read the Bible and find inspiration because of Rome. We don't gather around the Lord's table because of some great conspiracy to create a fairy tale that gives hope where there is no hope. Far too many years have gone by for such silly notions. How do we account for the persevering, unwavering influence of this man, Jesus Christ, some 2,000 years after his death? After attacks from every generation, in light of such great hostility from those who oppose him, why do 2.1 billion people continue to insist that Jesus Christ is Lord? The answer comes from the Apostle Peter in John 6, 66 through 69. Jesus has just spoken of himself as the one sacrifice that must be feasted upon for men to inherit eternal life. His comments are exclusive and offensive to many, and as a result, a large number of those who were casually following Jesus turn away. So Jesus turns to the 12, and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We continue to hang on the words of Christ. Amen? We hang on the words of Christ for he is the very hinge of history. Everything depends upon his words being true. He who once said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. For over 2,000 years, people have believed this man, and they have come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. He is the final and perfect sacrifice that accomplishes peace with God and life everlasting. But here's what we know, those of us who believe, that his presence, as he walks into what the Bible calls the temple, which is our bodies, which is our lives, when he walks in, he will have the same effect now as he did then. He will clean house. He will be offensive to everything that we believe and think as true about ourselves and our lives and our motivations. But to sit at his feet and to hear his words, to see his love for us on the cross, to gaze upon the empty tomb and to hear the testimonies of countless millions throughout the ages that Christ is alive and the Savior of souls, these words of the Savior keep us hanging on. Jesus Christ is the hinge of history. 
but he is also as near as your next breath. All are welcome to know and to be saved by the one who made atonement for our sins. You need not kill an animal or pay a tax. You need not make a pilgrimage or undergo circumcision. You need simply confess your sins, return on being repent and turn away from that which offends God. And call upon the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then submit yourself to the kingship of Christ. Make your commitment to Christ public through the sacrament of baptism and receive the power of his Holy Spirit within you, the very Spirit of God that makes all things new. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news for all people. Do you believe? Lord, we just surrender ourselves to this history. That you said you would, you would tear the temple down, and you did. For it is no longer necessary for us to think of God existing in one geographical place for one group of people where forgiveness of sins is available through one place with the perfect sacrifice that we purchase. In Christ, you have purchased us through his perfect sacrifice, through his perfect life. You did it once and for all. And that is the center of history. And although much has happened in the past 2,000 years, much has happened in the past several years of our lives, we're easily distracted, we're easily led to believe that other things are more pressing, urgent, or relevant. Death comes for us all. We all know that we will be judged for our lives based upon what we have done and left undone. It is the universal condition. And history tells us that there is hope for us because of this one called Jesus Christ who is our Lord. He is our master and king. He is the Lamb of God. And amidst all the noise, I pray that you would place deep within us this foundation upon which all other things rest. That our lives would be directed, our hopes would rest upon, our ambitions would be aligned with Jesus Christ as Lord. That we would live our lives out of gratitude for what was accomplished, not philosophically, but historically that you died on that cross for our sins and you rose again on the third day. And may this truth motivate us to bring light into the darkness of human ignorance here and throughout the world that all might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.